This is Lunk Communique number five being recorded on December 30th, 2008. I am Monty, and I am here with the Get Along Gang, who are <laughs> otherwise known as Jackson Meredith, Andrew, and Brian. And today we are talking about mental health, in particular, its connections to our social and economic structure that dominates most of the world. And, well, basically, you know what this show is. We, we take a, we pick a subject and then bitch about how capitalism has fucked it up. <laughs> Who would like to start talking about how capitalism has fucked up mental health? Well, I, I was going to start off by giving some statistics. Um, first, kind of ta- start talking about the rise in prescription dr- uh, drug use of, of psychiatric drugs, and then also an increase in, in mental illness in the United States. Um, and then later, probably touch on a possible correlation between those, those two uh, rises in, in, in drug use and mental illness. Um, some of the first ones deal with um, the use of psychiatric drugs in children. And uh, the first statistics I have are from the Journal of the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. Um, this deals with the years of, uh, from the years 1987 to 1996. And in, those, in that period, there was an overall use of psychiatric medication in children and adolescents, uh, excuse me, the use of psychiatric medication in children and adolescents more than tripled in those years. Um, the use of stimulants such as Ritalin for ADHD increased fourfold. And ADHD is? Attention Deficit Disorder Hyperactive Disorder, which if you ask me, it's basically just another term for being a a kid full of energy. Mm-hmm. The the use of Ritalin for ADHD increased fourfold from six per a thousand children to twenty four per a thousand children in adolescents. Um, the use of antidepressants by children more than tripled from three to ten per a thousand. And again, this is from nineteen eighty seven to nineteen ninety six. Um, and then among children already on one psychiatric medication. The number who were on multiple drug, multiple such drugs almost tripled from 47 to 116 children per 1,000. And then also, with the rise in, of psychiatric drugs, there's been an increase in the profits made from them. The combined sale of antipsychotics and antidepressants jumped from around $500 million in 1986 to nearly $20 billion in 2004, and that's a, a 40-fold increase. Also, there's been an increase in people disabled by mental illness, the disability rate, what it is today compared to what it was in 1955, there's a six-fold increase. And um, those, those I think, are pretty alarming statistics that indicate that we do have a, a problem. There's an increase of, of drug use and an increase of uh, mental health problems, and I think we need to explore the reasons. Well, I want to come back to ADHD, but I think the first question that arises from these statistics with these, this, these, I mean, you know, exponential increases in drug use. Okay, so is this, is this a matter of diseases that have existed all along being newly diagnosed? I mean, is this, is this an increase in diagnosis? Uh, or is this a matter of these illnesses being contrived since their prescriptions are so profitable? That's that's what I would say. I would say that. What would you say? I would say that the, the the drug industry, in connection with psychiatrists, which are funded by drug pushers and the drug companies, the the pharmaceutical representatives that that sponsor the the conventions and and the doctors get kick, uh, kickbacks from. That it seems like they're trying to create disorders, like turning uh, social shyness into social anxiety disorder now. So it's almost like they're creating a market for their drugs by creating this, these disorders. 
Social anxiety disorder. Sad. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it once would have been, you know, a personality trait that you had to learn to, to deal with is now being turned into to, uh, a disorder that requires a, a pharmacological treatment. And uh, then you have ADHD, which kids have always been hyperactive. Some kids are more hyperactive than others. And now, now these more hyperactive children, children that have a hard time paying attention, instead of looking for varying methods of educating them and kind of working around their differences, um, they're being told that they're, they need to be medicated for, the, for this aberration in behavior. And it, it sort of seems like a, a chemical warfare on, on individuals that are, that are not conforming to this what is called normal in society. See, I think this is a good tie-in for our last episode because we talked about schooling and the education system. Now, essentially, if you want children to just sit there and take in information, um, what's more effective than simply doping them up and keeping them in that sort of state? Without this sort of hyperactivity and this sort of natural natural activity that children do. They're active. They don't like to sit down all day. Yeah, that's sort of the question. If you have, if this school system, and, we, and we, don't, we can't dwell on the last show too much, but if a school system is about making people, making kids sit still and get used to losing their freedom and sitting still all day, sort of a byproduct of that sort of school system is that it's going to be boring. Yeah. And rather than confronting how an educational system might be boring children, we just drug them until they don't feel the boredom right. anymore. It's kind of like they're being told, you have to behave in this way or you have, a, you have an actual medical problem. And right. We're going we're gonna to drug you until you behave normally. Again, there's nothing wrong with the system. It's a, it's a personal issue, and if you don't conform, then there's something wrong with you. Yeah. Now, I'd like to tie this back into the workforce, and I've heard things before just thinking this up, but... but um, I, I don't remember where exactly, but definitely in, in Asia where um, they have very harsh work conditions, a lot of employers will hand out methamphetamines to keep their workers going. And uh, just basically sort of that same drug culture, you know, uh, using drugs to get what you want out of people. That's basically what Ritalin is, is a, a stimulant drug that uh, is being handed out by the the school psychiatrists. One thing we addressed before was uh, children aren't even getting enough sleep. So if there's natural reasons, uh, additionally to people's personalities that that make it hard for them to conform, and you just medicate those sort of uh, conditions away, I guess. And there there are a number of problems associated with the use of of Ritalin. There's there hasn't been a lot of studies done. Um, on younger children, and there's even been an increase in the number of preschool-aged children that are, are receiving Ritalin. Um, a, it, this is from a Los Angeles Times article, um, and the, the Los Angeles Times article is reporting on a, in another article from the Journal the Amer American Medical Association, and they claim that as many as 200,000 preschoolers are now taking Ritalin as an off-label use. And off-label refers to the drug being used in a manner that isn't um, explicitly approved by the Food and Drug Administration. So this this is a the use of a drug based on a doctor's discretion. And we don't really have a lot of studies that show what these drugs do in the long term to children and also in children that young. And there's been studies on animals that have shown that Ritalin will actually cause anatomical changes in the brain and it's very similar to, it works very similarly to how cocaine works in the brain by um, messing or perturbing neurotransmitter function. Well, doesn't it actually, um, was it dopamine that it affects? Yeah. That over time the receptors become inactive and you actually have a, a change over time, sort of a depressing effect of people who no longer use it? Yeah. There's, uh, there has been studies that show a lot of evidence that Ritalin can cause 
depression in people later in life. That sets them up for more pharmaceutical use. Yeah, and then, then they'll be taking a cocktail eventually with the with the antidepressant, the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, which is also being increasingly used in children. Um, and a lot of that use is off-label use. Um, Prozac is actually the only antidepressant approved for children, but there's there's a lot of the other newer SSRIs being used on an selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Those are the popular. That was a mouthful. I don't. I think you lost us. I was on those briefly. Yeah, and the problem with those, and this is what a lot of the statistics that I have here are from a book called Mad in America by Robert Whitaker. And the problems with the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or SSRIs is that they do um, also cause a change in how the neurotransmitters function in the brain. And um, there's never been any scientific evidence to link depression or even schizophrenia and ADHD to any sort of chemical imbalance. There's uh, never been any sort of uh, conclusive um, evidence to show that that's the case. So a lot of this is just kind of a trial and error. The selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, they cause a temporarily a temporary flood of serotonin in the brain. And to compensate for that, the brain down-regulates its amount of serotonin uh, receptors. So what what Robert Whitaker argues in his book is that, and, and it's also backed up by a lot of evidence and studies, is that the brain down-regulates, cuts down its serotonin receptors by about 50%. Wait, hold on, D- down-regulating? It's, it's cutting down the amount of serotonin receptors by as much as 50%. Okay, now you've used a lot of these terms. Can we take it down to the layman level and have sort of a general summary of what this means? Yeah, basically the, the, the SSRIs are causing... He's saying that the, this medication is causing a lot of the problems that they are purported to fix. Yeah, well, they're exacerbating them. They're, they're taking... Um, they're using them increasingly on people that aren't even clinically depressed and there's a diagnostic and statistic manual for determining someone who's clinically depressed and a lot of times the doctors aren't even making sure that these people meet those standards. So uh, are you kind of saying that this has a similar uh, sort of effect like uh, smoking does where you take you take a cigarette and it, it's sort of a dis- distressing process you do, but when you don't have the fix, you feel even worse than you did when you had the drug. Yeah, it's it's definitely like that. There's there's physiological and, and biochemical changes in the brain that occur when you use these drugs, um, and they may be semi-permanent to permanent, depending on how long the drugs are used. The, um, the down-regulation that takes place makes it... Uh, more likely that a person who was depressed after using these drugs, it makes it more likely that they will again become depressed because there's been a, a change in the brain, a biochemical change. Now, is this downregulation? Is this essentially what happens if you're addicted to, say, cocaine or heroin, and you this that sort of depression yeah. that that former junkies go through when yeah. they're taken away from the drug that they experience a kind of chemical withdrawal yeah the brain actually changes and brain has to go through compensatory changes because of the, the increase in serotonin therefore when the drugs are pulled or when the the dose that is being used is no longer effective there's not enough receptors there the way i understand this and i first found out about this learning about methamphetamines, which have a very drastic effect in this way, that um, when you take it, it, some sort of drug like that, it, it ups those chemical levels in your brain. And essentially afterwards, after your brain sort of tries to deal with that to re-regulate the, the way you um, interpret those signals, you can no longer have those sort of emotional highs 
after you're off of it, you're essentially yeah. um, depressed in, in a natural state. That the drug can cause such a euphoria that your brain almost has to shut off its own joy receptors right. just to stay functioning. And then you basically become permanently dependent on that drug, and um, every time you take that drug, you can, can never get as high as you did before. That's, that's the problem with drug addiction, many of those drugs. So what are we sort of saying here is that Rather than maybe the coke head who has to to double his double his dose every few months to get the same high, if you're getting your high from a pharmaceutical antidepressant, eventually if the Ritalin doesn't do the trick for you anymore, they'll move you up to a cocktail. Is that what we're sort of saying here, Brian? Yeah, it seems like they'll either up your dose or they'll put you on um, a cocktail. A lot a lot of people that um, develop clinical depression. So, sometimes people will go to the doctor with depression and the doctor will, you know, just give them a pill, an SSRI, to deal with the depression. And what we're seeing is the people that have been on those pills actually become more likely to become depressed in the future as a result of being on these drugs and even have psychotic depressions where, where there's actual, like, a, like a, a psychotic episode. So if, if, if I'm, see if I'm understanding this correctly, because I don't have as much of a medical background as, as you do, we're, even if we give the pharmaceutical industry the benefit of the doubt here, these medications are essentially causing a short-term <laughs> fix, but leading to more dramatic long-term problems. Yeah. Which then more medication can be prescribed for. Which I think it's kind of fitting that it, it's called clinical depression because you go to the clinic and you get sicker. Sure. <laughs> um, this is this is actually from one of the essays by by Robert Whitaker, um, Anatomy of an Epidemic. But he talks about how patients that were treated with an antidepressant, an SSRI, were the most likely group to seek treatment following termination of studies where they were given these drugs. Um, highest incidence of relapse. They exhibited the fewest weeks of reduced or minimal symptoms <clears throat> following. He cites a few other studies that concur the results of that one. So you give your, your first patients some free samples, yeah. and they want to come back for more. I yeah. suppose that's not drastically different from the guy on the street corner who'll give you your first line for free. Yeah, exactly. And... There's a case that other other psychiatric drugs may also be causing problems like that, the antipsychotics that are used for schizophrenia that affect the dopamine centers in the brain uh, have a similar effect. The, the brain regulate tries to regulate, it becomes super sensitive to dopamine because there's a the antipsychotics, they antagonize or block receptors that dopamine would normally plug into there's a, a super sensitivity that's created and then these people when they're taking these medications they're actually more prone to having relapses and, and more severe symptoms of schizophrenia so there's there's just not a lot of good science behind a lot of these drugs and what what scares me is how many people that are influenced to take these drugs are going to get these statistics are going to be told that these drugs are actually going to exacerbate their problems. Yeah. And, I mean, this is backed up by the World Health Organization, which stated if you live in an industrialized country, I mean, that's, a, that's a good predictor that you're not going to fully recover from schizophrenia. They did studies where they were comparing um, schizophrenics in industrialized countries where where these these drugs are more commonly used to uh, more poor third world countries where uh, there's not a lot of usage of drugs and the people that were never given any drugs fared better than those that received these newer antipsychotics. And the fundamental problem with all of this to me seems like there's this effort for whatever reason to use pharmaceuticals to solve problems and create happiness instead of actually getting at the root of what is causing all this widespread unhappiness. Now this this to me ties into sort of the chemical culture that we have. You create a chemical, a substance to fix any problems that you might have. 
Now, there are drugs for everything. There are drugs for dieting. Don't exercise. Take drugs. Uh, when, when, you wanna, when you have a mental problem, you want to fix it immediately. You don't want counseling. You don't want to go through these lengthy processes of life-changing and uh, alteration of diet and anything like that. You want something that fixes your problem immediately. And that's what people want. And, of course, a lot of these drugs can provide side effects that are far worse than the ailment they're intended to treat, and no bother. Just go back to the doctor for a second prescription to deal with the side effects from the first drug. I've been diagnosed with a few things. I've been diagnosed with anxiety, and I've been diagnosed with depression, and recently I've been diagnosed with Asperger's. And I am not on medication. I haven't been for a while, and uh, I still feel awful. So I'm going to eventually blow my brains out regardless of whether or not I'm on pills. So what? Well, I think, I think we need to really look at why is, why is there this market increase in the number of people that are dealing with problems like the ones that you're dealing with. Is there an underlying cause that is a societal cause? Are, are we, are people unhappy because there's a chemical imbalance and, and a lot of people are being born with these chemical imbalances r recently? Is that, I mean, that's one hypothesis, but it just doesn't really seem like a plausible one. I have had many counselors and many therapists and many psychologists and they all, they all say variations on the same things, although they've given me many possibilities as to what my issues are that range, range from the chemical imbalances to uh, influences when I was a kid, uh, obsessive compulsive things that developed in... The one thing that they, all of these things have had in common was that they were all focused on me personally. Yeah. And what I should do to mm -hmm. help myself. I've been on a few medications, but it that that hasn't been a major part. For one thing, they didn't do anything. They did nothing at all. I didn't feel any different one way or the other when I was on meds. But so do you know which drugs you were doped up with? Oh, it's been it's been a few years. I was on Paxil. I was on. Um, for like a couple days, I was on Xanax. I was told to take, I was told to take these pills, and I'm not sure what they were supposed to make me feel. They were supposed to, it's basically Prozac. Xanax is an anti-anxiety. Well, it's meant to make you feel. I was told that it would make me feel euphoric, and it would just yeah. just completely blitz me out. Yeah. But it did nothing. I think that we should, kind of as a cautionary statement, we should tell people that are on any psychiatric medications that abruptly stopping medications is a really bad idea. And it is generally it is it is generally an extremely bad idea. Um that said, uh, I I think I, I think just quit them. <laughs> <laughs> I think and there was no effect whatsoever. Not that you should. I think that people should research this on their own. Look at some of uh if you're on an SSRI or an antidepressant, look at those Drugs. Look at some of the research and see see if there, if this is something that you actually want to be on. If you're on a an anti anxiety drug or a drug for for schizophrenia, do some research and find out about it. And then if you determine that you want to do another course of treatment involving some sort of psychotherapy with with a, a therapist, you should talk to your your physician or your psychiatrist and figure out a way to titrate off of these drugs because an abrupt stop in taking them would definitely be bad because there are these chemical changes in the brain and an abrupt stop would <coughs> would leave your brain very um, starved for a lot of these neurotransmitters that are being uh, being altered by the use of these drugs so it, it's, it's definitely something that needs to be slowly and I would also uh, caution people, if you're not satisfied with uh, your, your practitioner, your mental health, or um, whoever gives you chemical substances, uh, get a second opinion. Try to find someone that 
that might actually care about your conditions and not just be pushing you drugs. What, what, what about the actual perceived benefits of these drugs? I mean, there are, there are a lot of people who are on them who say, hey, I became an, an absolutely 100% productive member of society now that I'm on these drugs and, and I, my life has never been better. And that's, that's actually true. <clears throat> I mean, a lot of these studies show, the studies that, that compare the SSRIs or the SSRIs or antidepressants, compare those... Um, compare the antipsychotics to placebos, there is a, a benefit seen in the people that are taking them in the short term. But the problem is, as the brain adjusts to the drug and to the increased levels of, of uh, serotonin or the decreased levels of dopamine or, or whatever neurotransmitter that's affected by the drug, as those changes occur, there's there actually is an increase in problems seen where you have people that had mild forms of depression developing clinical forms of depression where they need hospitalization and you have suicide attempts, a lot of suicide and homicide linked to the use of SSRIs. Like the one of the Columbine shooters was on an, um, an off-label use of, a, of an antidepressant called uh, Luvo Luvox or Fluvoxamine. But I thought Marilyn Manson was responsible for that. Oh, incident. yeah. <laughs> well, actually... What I was trying to get at when I said that was there are many people who are, who are on medication who, who actually um, who are actually it actually does sort of clear their mind and, and sort of con condition them to be as I said a productive member of society however what does it mean to be a productive member of this society to, to perpetuate what this society is all about is, is that necessarily a good thing it's about profit. I mean, I would say production. They want you medicated so you'll be a valuable member of the workforce and increase I profits. For I think a good question there is um, if you're not satisfied with your life, is that your per problem personally? It is a, a personal problem, but also, I mean, society views it as their problem because they want to keep people in the workforce. I mean, they're also willing to pay people to remain unemployed. Screwing with people's brains <laughs> and sort of mess, messing around inside there and cre cre creating a sort of a, a state, creates an environment inside one's brain that allows them to conform more easily to a, the, the system that they are a part of. Obviously, there's a lot to be said about this issue. When, when we're talking about this, what it brought to my mind is the movie Fahrenheit 451. Have, have you guys seen that movie? Yeah, it was, yeah, it was a book also. It was a novel first by uh, Ray Bradbury. Yes. Essentially, when people were unhappy, basically everyone was on drugs uh, to be satisfied with their lives. And if you weren't feeling very well, the answer was to go get your drugs. Well, that, that seems I, think that's a, I think that's a common theme in a lot of dystopian science yeah. fiction. I think Lois Lowry's The Giver also involved people taking euphoria pills. Brave New World with Soma. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it seems to be a prevailing opinion, and increasingly among even the medical community, they have, you know, if someone is having problems, it's, it's, it's all of a sudden it becomes a problem with the person. And there's no... There's no attempt made to find out what's causing this. I think that you can draw a parallel between some of the problems that you see in, in the primates in zoos. When they, there's a lot of researchers have claimed to see depression in, in these, in the primates and in self mutilation and things like that. And, and if you look at a large urban city, is that, it seems awful lot like a human zoo, like a, like maybe we're developing some of these problems that are related to a sort of captivity. Now, um, what what I see here, connection, people in in the industry are trained to look at this as a personal issue, as a as a manifestation of an individual. But and problems don't happen in a vacuum. Let's let's back up a minute. This is this is not just a small narrow professional bias. I mean, that's really. I'd say it's probably really the attitude of the entire capitalist world. There's, I mean, there's definitely there's an emphasis on, you know, on the nobility of the lone wolf and how it really it's all just a matter of personal responsibility. You know, the the idea of social responsibility is is rare and pretty widely mocked, but it's really all about personal responsibility across the system, and it's all just 
your fault if something goes wrong, and it's all your credit if something goes right for well, you. Well, this is this is getting back to what I was talking about a while ago about my therapists and and counselors and all those people that that you know as as I said, medica- medication it, it did play a part in in the therapy that was given to me, but it, it was it was a a rather comparatively minor role. Um, that the drugs played actually m- most of the treatment was on the uh, therapy and psychotherapy cognitive yeah cognitive the, the, the con- cognitive behavioral therapy and yeah. what they and, call it and what what is that for those of us who've never been in who've never gone through any of this it is basically conditioning somebody to making them feel in my case having sort of social anxiety it it, it involved a lot of in in my personal case it was gradually exposing me to m- more and more of the the social social inter- interaction interacting with people and just sort of this gradual step by step thing i did not Put that very like, well, like baby steps and yeah, about yeah, Bob. Y- yeah. Have you seen this? kind of yeah. <laughs> you know what I think is interesting is we're talking about the individual and personal responsibility. This is what I'm going to go back to what I was talking about before yet again. <laughs> it was it, the, the, the the focus of of that therapy that I was referring to was on specifically me. Mm-hmm. It, it was it was it was completely based on. On me changing my personal outlook on the world, on on life, on uh, changing changing my feelings on on everything, the way I see the world. So, in other words, your mental illness has nothing to do with the world you're living in, has nothing to do with your relationships with your family, with your friends, with your teachers, and it has everything to do with your attitude. Well, there was yes and no. Because there, there is, there was a recognition on environmental influences and on my upbringing. There, there was a recognition on those things may or may not have causing the issues that I have. The treatment, uh, the the treatment that was fixing the problem, was focused on me personally. So was was the attitude, was this sort of clinical attitude in your case? So w- what percent? Of your mental illness was your attitude responsible for fifty percent, sixty percent, seventy percent? I'm not sure what exactly you're asking. I mean, it's just okay. So maybe, so maybe the rest of the world is responsible for twenty five percent of the noise in your head. Are you responsible for the? Oh other no, 25%? I don't. I, I don't. I don't think that there was an, an attitude of a, an actual responsibility of society. Society, society, uh, the world, the environment I lived in. It may have had, had an influence. On my problems, but there wasn't really there, there wasn't really it, it was never insinuated to me that society is responsible like should take responsibility for my problems. So the responsibility the responsibility was mine. It's up to me to fix my problems. I I have to personally change you know as I said change my outlook. So is the attitude sort of like? Eighty percent of the noise in your head is just your own attitude problem, and then the other twenty percent of it is the world incidentally stepping on your toes, and you just have to learn to adjust that eighty percent. I would, ignore the I 20%. would say, I would say that the incidental is the perfect way that they saw it. My my personality, you know, the way I am, the way I think, it it, it just happens to clash with the way the world is, and and I should, I should, I mean, basically what I was told was that. I should learn skills on how to cope on how to cope with dealing with the world, but the world itself is not going to change. Mm-hmm. Basically, it's Bas- basically you telling you as it is, telling you you need to conform to what well, is considered yeah. normal. What was told to me over and over again is that, that there was very often an admittance that the world is a fucked up place. It is screwed up. It is corrupt. But the the ideal of a normal, healthy person is someone who can somehow. Coexist and shrug off how fucked up. The rest now of the world I want to take this back a little bit to the point I was making. Um, we were talking about in the world the onus is on you to um, to cope to uh, to flourish in this world. It's an individual thing. But when you come to these industries, uh, these mental health practitioners, it's sort of as I see it a haven 
because in a way they say, well, it's it's not entirely you. It's your it's your brain chemistry. It's something we can work with. We have solutions for you. We have chemicals to give you, and uh, we have ways that you can deal with this. In a way, it's your responsibility, but in a, in an abstract way, it's it's your mental chemistry, and that's where I think the drugs come in. Well, I think that's part of the science of psychiatry being and psychology being tainted to a degree by the profit system, by capitalism. Um, I mean, you'll see uh, in drug companies a cover-up of serious side effects, like with Prozac. It was, from the start, it was determined to be a very dangerous drug. They had several times increased rates of homicidal and suicidal thoughts in, in, in studies, and they sat on these this, this alarming evidence. And they went ahead and they pushed forward their drug despite all of these problems that were being found in these studies. And it's it's because that they had invested a lot of money in this drug and they wanted to ensure that they would maintain a profit. They wouldn't have any profit loss. Also, I mean, you see a connection between a lot of the, the, the school shootings and, and mass murder shootings that have been going on. A lot of these people were on drugs like Prozac and the SSRIs. Um, psychiatry in general is just... Is just very much tied into the the profit motivation, and the doctors do receive kickbacks from the from the pharmaceutical companies for increasing prescriptions of their drugs. I would like to specify that I actually fantasized about going on uh, shooting massacres long before <laughs> it was it was even decided that I have mental issues, and <laughs> you know when the pills came in or whatever so See, there, there's something more going on but, uh, I mean, the, the medication the medication may make it worse but there's something going on beyond just that I don't, I don't know if that's necessarily abnormal to have sort of thoughts like that I think that few people Here's, would admit yeah. to them but I think a lot of people have been annoyed or or just made well, so I've, uncomfortable with situations that they've well, had. I, I probably, when I was a teenager, I probably would have done Columbine Part 2. However, my social anxiety was so bad that, that, stopped you? that I, I didn't want to go out in public. So, <laughs> See, um, there you go. Problem solved. <laughs> Maybe maybe if I took more medication, I, I, could, find, I could find the right combination to, well, hey... I feel okay going out. Do Give me you, my Uzi. Do you think you were actually capable of that, or, or was oh yeah, was that was that post drugging or pre? No, this was no, this was when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, before See, before all. I this. don't think these are the things that people think about. You look at how many mailroom shootings have happened. How many people are wanting to do the mailroom shootings and just don't get up the gumption to do it? I mean, it's obviously a deeper social problem than it's given credit. My therapists and counselors. As I said, yada yada. They were like the way you usually people are. You know, the, the system is fucked up, but see, we, we never really got into like political discussion. But the, the attitude I got was the, the usual thing of, yeah, some things are fucked up, but it, it isn't inherently fucked up. There, there isn't there isn't an, an inherent problem within the system that should mm -hmm. be fixed. And and I was I, I was given a lot of you know possible explanations for where my my issues. Problems come from anxiety disorders, and they—they've never told me that—that that, hey, you know, maybe you feel like shit because the system that you exist in is inherently exploitative. So your your hypothesis is that capitalism is largely to blame for a lot of well, that, that's that's what I'm that's what I'm that's what I'm wondering. I want to I want to jump in here because I actually want to play with the words that he just he said. Yeah. Maybe you feel like shit because this system treats you like a piece of shit. And sure, I mean that's the way I feel. I, a lot of the frustration that I've had is mainly has to do with the coercion involved. And the, the, the therapist's job is is to help the individual person and to sort of help them out. You know, help them cope, work with them to figure out way, ways that they can exist in some sort of relative comfort. It's it's not their job to you know push push for changes in the in the, the economic structure of the world or you know changing society and culture. Or it's not in their job description to completely change how the world is structured. 
the thing is, how are you going to have any long-term change if you're just telling people to accept the conditions in the world, and how are they going to have any pride in themselves if they just well, accept how horrible things are? Well, their job is, is to give them, is, is to help help them be able to cope with the way the world is. It's not their job to change. Should that be recognized? Should, should therapists uh, recognize that, you know, the, the way the world exists and the system that we live in how much do you think it, it those things have to do with the creation of these either real or perceived to be real mental illnesses that's a major problem i think within the system, within the the medical industry and in in the mental health industry is that they're treating symptoms they're not treating root causes they're putting band-aids over gunshot wounds and they're not they're not looking at the underlying problems that have made you feel the way that you do. What are the root causes? What What are the root causes of my social anxiety and my depression and my my Aspergers? See, I'm I'm going to uh, come at this from a sort of labor theory uh, way of looking at it in a sort of class analysis. Uh, working class people uh, go on by selling their labor. Uh, there's there's a term for this. It's a uh, labor alienation just to survive every day by by selling yourself by and that's sort of a an expectation that that's how you're supposed to survive in the world is working for someone else's interest and the basic the basic thing that has always been presented to me when when getting treatment when getting therapy is is that is that i mean once again yes they, they would often admit that the world is very messed up and there are a lot of problems and there's even the possibility that there is very inherent fundamental problems with the way things are. However, the main the main issue that they focused on and, and actually, you know, what, what I what what I what I am actually personally focused on is, you know, all of that may be true, but I still gotta get a job. Mm -hmm. I still have to I still have to conform to how things work if, if I have any hope of existing and not, and not just going and dying in the street or something. I, I, I need to be able to have an income, to have money so I can get you know all, all, all of the necessities to, to live on. And that involves conforming to a system regardless of what I think of that system. And it also means that you would be... With with little work history, you'd be entering into a low-paying job where trying to survive is very difficult. I mean, a lot of people also exacerbate the problems with that by turning to drugs and illicit drugs and alcohol to try and ease the pain of that, and, and it further creates problems. I think a lot of the mental illness, a lot of even physical illness stress-induced uh, heart attacks and things like that can be directly attributed to our culture and, and the way our society is organized. I'm going to kind of take an analysis of this from industrialization. As we go along, what people do every day becomes more and more abstracted from any sort of survival or any sort of providing for their community or the people they care about. What you go to do and work every day, is there any real form of gratification you don't, you don't for what the, you do? You don't, you don't see, the see the results. results. Yeah. You see nothing. You're working for someone else's interest, and more and more the world the world um, expands, and you're working for someone else's interest. You may not even know the end result of what you're doing. Okay. <laughs> Sheba is here. She has a lot to say on this topic. Yes, <laughs> and I would like to talk, please. My big question regarding what I was just talking about is, what should I do? Should I just learn to cope, reg regardless tell of whatever me, I think? Tell or me about your mother. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is, let's take a Freudian analysis here. And this is, and this is definitely, and I think this is something that really a, a wide majority, probably of, of political radicals, in this capitalist system, can certainly relate to because. I mean, there is a sort of insanity-inducing contradiction there where we don't stand for anything this system supports, and, yeah, I mean, we, we have to conform to this system just to survive. To an extent, yeah. So should I, should, I, should I continue seeing my therapist then? I mean, sh should, should I learn how to deal with 
I mean, regardless of whatever my feelings are, regardless of whatever my personal actions are against it, you know, should I learn how to deal with it? Well, one option would be to seek a, a therapist that's sympathetic to your I, I what, don't know what you're that, experiencing, what you, how you feel. I don't know that a sympathetic therapist would be able to be accredited. I mean, you're, you're looking at the systems that they run through to become an accredited therapist. I don't know what those are, but I have my doubts that you're going to get... Well, they're out there. They're probably few and far between, though. But I think a lot of therapy is basically just being around people that that are of like mind and and sharing frustrations and things like that. I think that's more important than going to a, a professional that's taking all of your money... That's that's very that's very nice. I mean, I, I'm in, I'm in a room of like-minded people right now. The thing is, that is not going to help me cope with having a job and living in the world. And in fact, it it it, it would it would make it worse because I get when when I'm around people who are of like mind, I get so used to the way they think, and suddenly I'm thrust out into the real world, where which is just completely absolutely different, and you have to behave in a completely different way, and you can't say what you think, and you can't do what you want. That it don't work. Brian. Well, that, that to me is is a kind of way that people behave. Uh, first thing that comes to mind is people that have what what you would call an alternative lifestyle. Or radicals, of course, they, they live underground and they behave one way in one group and one way in another to survive. I think I think a lot of the way a lot of people like the way I, that feel the way I do maintain their sanity. And the only way to to maintain the sanity is just to focus on the struggle. Focus on trying to change things and focus on on fighting against it. I mean, that's the only way to to remain sane. I mean, that's a relatively functional way of going about it. That certainly kind of sums up where I'm sort of coming from. That doesn't necessarily answer Monty's question. I mean, where the person you're describing is someone who can put up with bullshit yeah. for a third of the day as long as he gets to go and or she gets to go and do our real thing with another third or so of the day. I mean, I think Monty's question is more about what can people do when they can't put up with bullshit people for a third of the day. People can't I'm in this room right here. All three of you are much, e- are much better at dealing with real life than I am. I, I don't know if the way I associate with you guys, if, it, if it's very obvious just how much I cannot deal with it. Mm-hmm. It is... Absolutely impossible. I have and still do contemplate suicide. Now, I want to specify that it's not just dealing with the conditions. It's not just showing up every day. You have to uh, smile at your bosses. You have to smile at people. And, and that was and, and that is and that is another part of it. You, you you can't just superficially conform to it just to get through it. You have to change your thinking. Well, you sounds- have to conform your brain completely change the way you see the entire world and in order to or, function in it. And that's why I see this sort of split. I mean, you have to act one way at one point and a different way at another point, especially if you're any sort of movement. That's almost schizophrenia by definition. <laughs> well, it sounds like your issue sounds more like an existential sort of crisis rather than a psychiatric problem. The answer to existential, existential crises is developing meaning in your life and that's what a lot of people just struggle with finding is a meaning to their life and a meaning to carry on for there's actually i mean it's it's a type of therapy existential therapy but i don't i'm not aware of any uh psychotherapists that employ that method but it's it's a it's a type of therapy do the people in the psychiatric industry do they give you any meaning is there any meaning that they address in their practice? Or is the meaning just to uh, become a part of the system? Is that all there is? They're very... Sim- I mean, they're, they're sympathetic to... They're trained to sort of at least act sympathetic, but I mean, they, 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 don't, they, they don't have a problem with anything that I say. N- nothing I think, and nothing about the way I perceive the world is going to help me live in that world. I mean, the whole point of my therapy was, was about, I mean, specifically with me, uh, being able to provide for myself. And that's what the focus all, was always on. It, was, it wasn't really about, you know, you know my, my problems with the, the system, capitalism, all that stuff. It, it was really about, never mind all that stuff right now, we have to work on this, on, on getting you 
out and functioning, fu- and functioning, then, functioning. Helping you build a public face that uh, a boss will put up with. Uh, yeah, I mean that, that. I mean that 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 was that was part of it. And obviously on the back end, you know, toning down your own BS detector to a point where you can put up with the relationship also. And in, in, in a way, I see that picking up where the school system lets it, off. The school system hasn't properly conditioned you, or you just haven't been able to uh, work your way through in the school system to be conditioned for the workforce. It wasn't so much about turning down my BS detector as much as it was like, hey, you know, maybe you should learn to like the BS. <laughs> you know what I mean? Turn it off. Well, I mean, don't have it. You know, I mean, yeah. the, the, B, the BS is something you should love. Well, they function normally within the system, and they don't see any reason why you shouldn't. And, you know, our culture isn't very accepting of people that aren't normal. They, if, if you're not acting like everybody else acts, then there's something wrong with you, and you may need to take these drugs. <laughs> I think that's something that we should, our society needs to do, is be more accepting of people that are different. I want to say that I think we have to take a look at what normal is, what crazy is. I mean, if normal is determined by how well you function in the system, then what does that say? In a crazy system, that makes you crazy. What concrete changes are going to have to happen in the world to allevi- to a- address and or alleviate all of these psychological problems that people have, like me? What, what, what would, how, how would society have to change in order for me to feel better? Well, there aren't any easy answers, and it's not going to happen overnight, but I mean, it's just... I'm not. I'm not saying. I'm not saying. Let's work on it happening. I'm saying what would have to happen. I would. Ha- I would have to say just on a very basic level. And of course, we don't have time to really get into this subject very much. But I mean, fundamentally, I mean, we basically have to scrap this competition-based system and move to something that's based more on cooperation. And I think yeah. that would probably do more for the sake of mental health of people all over the world than about any other that's- thing possible. Certainly, do more than certainly do more than a, a stash of riddle in the size of the moon. <laughs> and I have a point to make here, just my experience in the workforce. People like Monty, they need counseling. They need to be fixed. They're broken people. Now, a workaholic, a person that goes to work and works 60, 70, 80 hours a week, they're fine. They don't, they don't have they're mental problems. They're better than fine. They're a model. Someone who that, that has to go to work, that is obsessively, compulsively needs to work at every second of the day they get a chance, there's nothing wrong with them. And we have well, one, unless, um, we have one, we have about a minute left. Unless they, rec- the unless they recognize their problems and then and then they're willing to help them out with that. But uh, we are almost done. And, Forty-five seconds. And Who wants, got you've, one uh, well, you've you, you've described what's going to have to happen in order for me to be anywhere within the stratosphere of happiness, and it is so incredibly obvious that those things are never going to happen. So I think it's pretty much established <laughs> that I am completely fucked. Well, I think that there is hope that things can change because. They always do. Well, unfortunately, those changes are going to happen, have to happen before I die in order for me to feel those effects. <laughs> so I am effectively fucked. Thank you. And on that cheerful note, we're going to have to sign off here for Monty, Brian, and Andrew. I'm Jackson, and we will see you next time. Goodbye.